So we're going to jump into the first half of Matthew 19 this morning for you guys who are joining us for the first time. We've been in this gospel for over a year. We're hoping to wrap it up around two. Um, but Jesus is now, uh, he's getting down to some business, straightforward teaching for you and I, which I've been very thankful for. And this morning we're going to be dealing with marriage, divorce, remarriage, singleness. What do I do? The question here uh, that was posed before Jesus about divorce uh, really still is a political, religious, uh, physical, moral, ethical hot potato. <laughs> Can we put it that way? <laughs> I don't want to deal with it. Let's just keep it going. But I'm so thankful that this is in his word. I don't think this is a passage of scripture most preachers would choose to teach on. Uh, but I like talking about marriage. I like talking about what God has to say about divorce, remarriage. And it still remains very controversial and very complex uh, 2,000 years later from even when Jesus spoke these things. And many couples, unfortunately, are married for better or for worse, uh, but not for long seems to be the case. Um, it's also a very emotional topic for many people. It concerns many people's uh, lives and therefore uh, deserves um, sensitivity, I think, when we approach these things. And I think for you and I as believers, when we know the scriptures and we're able to grasp it, if we have a good understanding of it, we'll be able to uh, serve others in a sensitivity that they're able to receive God's truth. And that's what I'm hoping this morning we're doing is we're going through God's word verse by verse is that we're being equipped, guys. For this morning, this might be for us personally, but let me tell you what, we're all going to be speaking with people who have felt the effects of divorce, remarriage, mixed families, brothers and sisters who are called to singleness, how to encourage them in that calling and it is good for us to come alongside one another and speak truth into each other's life build each other up with god's truth so uh give a little context okay this was also a very dangerous question if you guys remember herod and tempest he was overseeing this region during the time of jesus who divorced his wife and he married his brother's wife you guys remember the dude Nut job. Anyways, remember John the Baptist confronted him? And what did the Herod end up doing to John the Baptist because he confronted him about his sin? Cut off his head, okay? So this is kind of the con, you, know, you want to talk about divorce? You might get your head cut off. So the dilemma here was that this put Jesus between a rock and a hard place because, or at the least, that was what the Pharisees thought in a yes or no, he'd be in trouble. If he'd condemn divorce, he'd risk the same fame as John the Baptist. And then if he condoned divorce, he would lose confidence in the devout people who had been following him. So let's take a look here at the first few verses. We'll call this untying the knot. Now, verse 1 of Matthew 19, it came to pass... When Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, a great multitude followed him and he healed them there. 
the Pharisees also came to him testing him. Should we test the Lord our God? Oh, these Pharisees. They came to him saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Well, during this time, there were two schools of thought that were out there in Jesus' day. We had Rabbi Shimei, who was uh, born in 50 BC. He lived to 30 AD. He was a very strict man. A man could only be married to a woman okay, if she was a virgin. And if you found out that she hadn't been a virgin, then you could divorce your wife. That was the only reason. Would you guys say that's pretty strict? Yeah, that's how he rolled. But then there was Rabbi Hillel, who was born in 100 BC, and he lived to 10 AD, a very liberal man. One of Hillel's followers actually said a man could divorce his wife simply if he had found another woman more attractive. Whoa! Glad that doesn't happen today. Um, the liberal view was more popular back then. Divorce was tragically even more common than today. So the issue really came from interpretation. If you guys want to flip back to the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 24 with me, it's because of one little phrase that is found here in Deuteronomy 24 that they had questions. And that's really why these Pharisees came to Jesus. And this is what the people of the day were really questioning. So we'll take a look here at this one phrase, some uncleanness. Some uncleanness. Catch it where it talks about this. Verse 1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. So that was the question. What does this mean, this some uncleanness? And that's what Jesus is going to get to. So let's flip back to Matthew chapter 19. And we'll see what Jesus has to say here. We just looked at untying the knot. Well, he talks about tying the knot in verse 4. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read? I think that's a problem with a lot of religious people. If you would just read the word of God, you would actually know what God thinks instead of rolling with your religious thoughts theories. Um, so have you not read that he who made, isn't that cool? God created them from the beginning and made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two flesh, but or not two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. I was close with that in, in, in a wedding ceremony. But if we look at verse four together, he challenges their knowledge of the law. Have you not read? So Jesus takes away any possibility of a myth or a fable out there, okay, with the creation account, and he sets his seal of truth upon it. Jesus himself said, no, the creation was a legitimate event. God created Adam and Eve. Not Adam and Steve. Adam and Eve. Man and woman. They shall become one flesh. 
So, verse 4, let's read it again. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, in verses 3 to 5, Jesus ignored the current debates, didn't even want to go there. It's easy for us to get caught up into those debates. Okay? Personally, I like to roll like Jesus. Does it really matter? Okay? What does God say? Because ultimately, that's what matters at the end of the day. So he doesn't go there. He ignores the debates. And he focuses attention where? On the word of God. It is so freeing when we can just do that, guys. Where is our focus going to be? Where, it should, where should it be given? It should be given to the word of God. So he took him where? To Moses. So back to the very beginning building blocks to which established this endearing and enduring marriage. So God made marriage and he has the right to make the rules on how marriage ought to work and look, right? Yeah, makes sense to me. I want you guys to turn to Genesis, first book in the Bible, chapter 2 with me. We're going to look at verses 24 in 25, this is where God institutes marriage, and he's going to give us four instructions. As we read just these couple of verses, I want you guys to catch these four. There's a severance, there's a permanence, there's unity and intimacy that we see in these two verses. Look at verse 24, therefore man shall leave, okay, so that's the severance there. From his father and his mother, and he should be joined. He's leaving to now be joined, permanence, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's unity. And they both were naked, and the man knew his wife. That's speaking of intimacy, and they weren't ashamed. So God instituted. This is the way it's going to be. This is the purpose of it. One man, one Woman, sorry Mormons, the Pharisees who wanted to argue religion, not discover truth, considered Moses that the, was really their highest authority. Talked with a brother this last week who gave me a bunch of teachings, all from the Torah, all of Moses. And the teacher in this series of CDs has exalted Moses above the rest of scripture. And to this day, guys, the Jews still hold the Torah the first five books of the Bible as being better than the rest of the word of God or the Old Testament. But here Jesus says, all right, let's go to Moses, the highest authority we have. So they were more concerned for the grounds for divorce. But Jesus was more concerned about what, guys? The principle of marriage. You want to talk about divorce? Well, I'm God and I want to talk about marriage. That's what matters. Now, Jesus then explained the reason for this concession. You see, divorce was already taking place during the time of Christ among the Israelites. It was taking place in the Old Testament when God gave these laws to Moses. So Moses put limitations on it requiring a certificate of divorce to be made out, indicating the reasons for it. So this required hiring a scribe and going through a legal procedure. So this thus protected the wife by restraining the husband from just impulsively 
divorcing his wife for whatever reason. Because she would become, what? A social outcast as a result of divorce. No man would marry her. She would be left defenseless and destitute. Even in our liberal state here of Wisconsin, we've instituted a four-month cooling-off period after filing a petition of divorce. I think that's a good thing. I wish they would make it a year long. Sorry, you can't just divorce and move on and marry somebody else. You know, cool off. Think about it. Maybe take some time and actually reason with your creator in what marriage really is about. So Moses was not encouraging divorce, but he was seeking here to discourage it. However, this was not his divine plan. You see, marriage of one man and one woman for life really is the foundation to a stable society. And I don't think that's something we should take lightly as Christians. We find stability there. Why are things falling apart like crazy in our country? Why are we slipping so fast? Well, look what's happened to the family in the last 50 years, guys. Divorce is now the norm. My grandparents' generation, it was a shameful thing to divorce, especially their parents' generation. But it's gotten a little easier, a little easier. Now it's the norm. You know, hey, I'll get married. If it doesn't work out, there's always a divorce. I mean, that really is the way we think today. It's backwards. It's not godly. So, um, marriage... The divine plan, guys, is one man, one woman for life. That should be the foundation, okay, um, to the stability of our society. But I also want to add a PS here. Homosexual or heterosexual divorce has done more to destroy marriage than all the gay activities in the world put together. I honestly believe that. We as a church will sure talk a whole lot about their agenda and what they're pushing. Yes, it is evil and wicked, and we should know what's going on. But let me tell you what, I wish the church would bring up just as much the problem with divorce and how destructive that is. I think we need to speak about that just as much, if not more, because it's doing more damage to our society. So how about having a marriage that glorifies God? You know, what are we doing this morning? Great. God doesn't want divorce. <laughs> what should we be about then? Well, maybe we should really be thinking about how can marriage glorify God? How can marriage, okay, can, I, can we have a marriage that really rocks all other relationships? Can we have a marriage that actually other people look in and say, hey, I want that type of marriage you guys have. Maybe to have a marriage where you're invested 100%. I'm all in, even if she or he isn't. See, display a marriage with your children in such a way that your kids are going to say, hey, when I grow up, I want to have a marriage like you and mom have. Let's go back to Matthew 19. Verse 6 says this, So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore God, or what God has joined, 
uh, together, let no one separate. So Jesus adds his commentary here. I don't know if you guys caught that or not. Again, he gives God's intention, and then the marriage should be a permanent permanent commitment, but he also spoke in these terms to discourage all divorce in principle, but not to prohibit divorce in every circumstance. Look at verse 7. He said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Was it a command, guys? No. Okay. But he would permit it. Catch that. It wasn't a command. It was just a permit. Uh, verse 8 says, Then he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, this is the reason why divorce was allowed. It was the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So there was no provision in paradise for Adam putting away his wife Eve. There was none. Verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So nations make whatever law they dare, but they cannot alter facts. God created the sanctity of sex. He protects it, he protects it and he punishes it when his law is violated. Um, you look at every fall of every great national power that there's been throughout history. One has one common thread in every single one of them. At the end of it all, when they finally came to an end and fell, homosexuality was embraced. Okay, They had perverted what God had meant for marriage. So we know that God tells us in Hebrews 13.4 that marriage is to be honored. Okay, It's an honored thing. Today it's looking at like you're foolish if you're getting married especially you young adults in here, okay? The average age of people getting married, it's getting up closer to 30 years of age. It's getting much older very quick. And it's because, well, it's not the cool thing to do. <laughs> we still can be in a relationship and we can have relationships that are just the same as marriage, okay? Except we don't have that commitment part. We'll just live together and do everything marriage people do but if it doesn't work out if we're not compatible glad we didn't get married because then it's just easier to split there's no commitment there that's what's going on in our society today but god tells us in hebrews 13 4 that marriage should be honorable among all in the bed undefiled but fornicators and adulterers god will judge so if we note that scripture guys god's original law of marriage left no room for divorce no room for divorce, but that the law was laid down before man sinned. Think about that. So we know God the Father hates divorce. You can jot down Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. That's where that verse is found in Scripture. Context is always good. Okay, If we go back a little earlier about what Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, I'm going to permit you to, to divorce. Do you guys know that God has a heart for women? He loves women. And if you have a hard heart, you're a horrible husband. The context of Malachi, what he hates is the man who terrifies his wife. He hates divorce. He hates the man who is abusing his wife. 
okay? Shouldn't be happening. He hates divorce. Should be loving correctly. So Jesus here, okay, um, or sorry, God in Malachi 2.16 says, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, God loves his creation. He loves his people. He especially loves his daughters. Okay, um, and of course, uh, he hates divorce. And who doesn't? That's really the question. People can bring up this verse, God hates divorce? You know, ah, he ain't right. He shouldn't hate divorce. It's a good thing because sometimes it's just good to get out of a bad relationship or with somebody that doesn't help you, you know, be happy or whatever the case is. But throw the question back on them. Who doesn't hate divorce? Think about the consequence of it. It destroys families, individuals. I know multiple brothers and sisters who have been torn up and have never rebounded from a divorce. Okay? And children, no matter what age, get affected by divorce. That's just reality, guys. So who likes divorce? See, divorcees, they hate embarrassment. They hate the stigma of it. They hate feeling that they failed the marriage. Okay? They hate the loneliness. They hate putting their friends and their family members in a place of, hey, choose me or them. Okay? But it doesn't say that God hates the divorced. Does it say that in scripture? God hates divorce. God hates the sin. But he loves the sinner. He loves the divorcee. Okay, we have a good way of shaming. Well, maybe we're beyond that. We're progressive in society. Divorce is cool. No, people still shame divorcees. Okay? God never said anywhere he hates the divorced. Yet, Okay, some of you guys might be like, I don't know, I don't like where you're going, Pastor, but we're going to hit a few scriptures real quick that maybe will open a few of your eyes real quick. Jesus' heavenly father got divorced. Is that biblical? Check out Jeremiah 3 8. You can turn there if you want or just listen carefully because this, what he says here in Jeremiah 3 8, he actually says again in Isaiah chapter 50. But we do see that Heavenly Father did get divorced. He says here in Jeremiah 3.8, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and had given her a certificate of divorce. Whoa! Seriously? Isaiah 50 says the same thing. And then think about Jesus' earthly father. Joseph, didn't he want to get divorced? Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away. Apollo, divorce, secretly. Okay? So we see that in Scripture. And one of my favorite stories, accounts in all of the Bible, is in John chapter 4. Do you guys remember what happened in John chapter 4? There was a woman who was divorced five times who shows up in that chapter. And didn't Jesus just love on her? Wow. Wow. So, by bringing these up, guys, I'm not giving liberty to divorce. I'm just trying to seek balance. There is divorce that is brought up in Scripture. 
we see it there and it needs to be dealt with. Okay? We can't just ignore it. So I bring those things up to bring some balance. And I also want to point out that happy marriages are not accidents. They take work. I'll be honest with you guys, being married is one of the hardest things I've ever done in life. It takes work. Practice, practice, practice. Okay? I'd encourage you guys, get any tools you can. Take in retreats. Go to conferences. We just finished up a six-week marriage class here. And a lot of you guys were first-timers. And I've heard a lot of good feedback. Loved it. It was really good. We grew a lot. We've considered a lot of new things. Our eyes were open to some new things. But it takes work. And I encourage you guys to do the work. Because that's part of what you committed to in the day you got married. Put the time in. You see, they are not just a, res a result of commitment, but really there's love, there's mutual understanding, sacrifice, death to self, selfishness, and hard work. Okay? They just don't happen. It's going to take work. And that's part of what we choose to do. Why? Because it's a commitment that we've made. Okay? It's a covenant that we've made with our wife or our husband and with God. He's a part of it. So let's go back to Matthew 19. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Then he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So marital unfaithfulness. Okay, Is this the exception clause here? Well, you know, which would justify grounds for divorce. We want to catch what Jesus and Moses before him, they recognize that there is human sinfulness. There's a sin problem. And because of it, there can be irrevocable damage done to marriage. Okay, Jesus adds this because in Old Testament time, adultery wasn't grounds for divorce. Do you guys know that? Adultery was not grounds for divorce. It was grounds for getting stoned to death. That's what the Old Testament teaches. So Jesus' statement doesn't make it necessary or require it, but he simply permits it. So certainly there can be forgiveness. There can be that patient healing and a restoration of a broken relationship. I've seen that happen with brothers and sisters in Christ. Some horrible sin took place. And hey, they were able to work through it by God's grace and with his help and the help of the church. Got some counseling. They were able to come through it. And some of them stronger together as a married couple than they were actually before. Um, but this would be a Christian. This really should be the Christian's first approach to the situation. No, we're going to fight for our marriage. We're going to work through we're going to forgive. But sometimes there's things that happen that are just tragedies. And divorce is always a tragedy. Uh, we will always want to look for forgiveness and reconciliation, even if adultery would take place. So your marriage isn't what you expected it because, catch this, guys. A lot of us go in, rose-colored glasses on, till death do us part. No problem, babe. I'm all in. This is going to be awesome. I love you so much. 
How many of you guys had, like, your hardest year of marriage was your first year? Show of hands. Was I the only one? First year was hard. Because <laughs> what's the problem? The, the reason is, guys, you married a sinner. That's the problem. And guess what? You're a sinner. So now you got two sin bombs married, committed to each other in one house. You guys think it's going to be easy? Sometimes I think we have wrong expectations, and that's why we always encourage here at Freedom Fellowship, if you're going to get married, you're going to have premarital counseling for months before we'll marry you. We're going to sit down and look in what God has to say about marriage, how he has defined it, what expectations are. And if we can talk you out of marriage, great. We're not against marriage, but sometimes people just, hey, I just love them. Great. You guys know what? How our feelings go with love, they can change. Okay? They can come, they can go, they can come again, they can go again. That's just part of it. Marriage is so much more than how we feel. Okay? It is a commitment to serve and to love that person until death. Um, your marriage isn't what you expected because you are a sinner married to a sinner and you both live in a fallen world. The good news is that there is sufficient grace to bring you or bring your marriage back to life. Let's take a look at verses 10 and 10 to 12 here. Uh, never tying the knots. Look at what he said in verse 10. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, or with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this scene, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born uh, thus from their mother's womb, and then there were eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So they had come to look at tying the knot as tying a, tying a slip knot, let's say. Um, here, is it better, or it, or it is better not to marry? Well, isn't that opposite, Jesus, of what Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 tells us? Because it said there, and the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Well, for a second, let's talk about eunuchs, okay? Men who cannot reproduce, that's who they are, okay? Or they may have a physical defect by castration or maybe intentional or by accident. But... I want to add a little bit to this conversation by bringing in the Apostle Paul. So let's turn in our Bibles and see what he has to say uh, pertaining to singleness in marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's context in this chapter leans actually in celibacy if you pay attention to what he's saying here more than on marriage. And he'll explain why. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. 
Let the husband render to the wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except for consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were as I myself. Paul was a single dude, but each one has his own gift. It's a gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now verse 10 tells us, to the married. Okay, now he's talking to married people. I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried and be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not, or let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by her or by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such a case, but God has called us to peace. For you don't know, O oh wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O oh husband, whether you will save your wife. So important that we're equally yoked if we choose to get married. What does that mean, guys? You better marry a believer if you're a believer. Okay? I don't marry people who are unbelievers. Okay? It's holy matrimony. If you want nothing to do with God, if you don't want to believe in God and what he has to say, go to the courthouse. Okay? <laughs> they're, they're not into God over there. Okay? <laughs> so, um, but here, it's hard when uh, you have a man or a woman come to faith in Christ once they're married. Now they have an unbelieving spouse. And I don't know about you guys, but when you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, knowing that you've been forgiven, you've been given eternal life, and you actually know God, it is the most wonderful, beautiful thing. And who do you want to share that with more than anybody else? Your spouse. You want them to come to a saving faith in Christ too. You want that so badly. But God begins to radically change you once you're born again of the Spirit. And sometimes that trips out the unbelieving spouse what you want to pray you want to talk about god you want to stop sinning ah, i don't want you anymore i'm out that happens a lot of times but if they're willing to stay with you what does the bible say great win them to jesus christ use your life as a witness and it happens guys my friend Brenda prayed for 38 years for her dad to come to faith. Her mom got saved. She ended up getting saved because her mom got saved. 38 years later of prayer, her husband finally came to faith. Her mom was a witness that entire time. 
So, Paul here, celibacy is a good thing, yet in the midst of this discourse on celibacy, he gives extraordinary advice to those who are married. If you see the transition that we read in verse 10, now to the married people. So God is not against intimacy, guys. Don't read this wrong. He's not against that. He is for marriage for some. Okay? And we also see here he's for celibacy for some. Singleness is an issue for everyone. Okay? We were all single at some time. Some are single for all seasons. Okay? Young brother and sister, listen to this. Some of you might be called to be single. It may be a gift that God gives you that you can use for his glory in this life. Be open to that because as Christians, what's the one thing we want in our lives? His will be done. Aren't we taught to pray that daily? Your will be done. Okay? I love my wife. I love my kids. At times, it's really hard because there's things that I want to be about the Lord's business all the time. And God's not asking me to forsake my family. You can't just run off and do your thing in service to the Lord. No, I've called you to love, to train up your kids. Well, I have to be present. I can't be present over there doing what I want to do because that's where people need to hear about Jesus, okay? There's a balance, okay, that you have to find when you are married and you do have family. So if you are called to singleness, men or women who never marry, that's for some. Also for some, there is single for a season, adults who will be married, okay, and then single again, separated, divorced, widowed. So there's are different seasons that are given. And I want to debunk a myth real quick. Okay, God's best is marriage, singleness is second. That's not what the scriptures say anywhere. Okay, note guys, verse 8 and 35. Okay, he speaks to that. So, singleness is important for some seasons and for some reasons. And then the gift of singleness, it's a gracious gift, verse 7. It is a gift given out of grace. So both singleness and marriage take a real gift to be carried out. It's better to marry if, okay? Um, so we are willing to spend, really, it's better to marry if we're willing to spend the rest of our lives giving more than receiving, so living successfully with a spouse, it takes lots of time, practice, practice, and more practice. I kind of liken it to figure skaters who are out there eight hours a day on the ice, and their partner has to keep picking them up over and over and over again because you're going to fall down and you take some hard hits. That's the reality of marriage, guys. It takes a lot of work. Not that it's a bad thing. Marriage is a good thing, God says. Singleness is a good thing. But whatever you do, guys, do it for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's wrap this up. Let's go back to Matthew 19. Verse 13. We're going to wrap up with three verses about blessing 
the blessing of children here. Uh, it says in 13, Then little children were brought to him, and he that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he departed from there. So in verse 13, when it says he put his hands on them to pray, it's really a symbol of blessing, okay? Um, prayer. We do that during baby dedications, okay? We get to pray over the child and their parents. Uh, off of verse 14 here, these words really are the simplest which ever fell from the lips of our Lord, yet maybe they're the loftiest words that Jesus have ever has ever spoken. Um, Mark actually helps us identify Jesus' temper at the moment in which he uttered these words. actually says that Jesus was greatly displeased. It's Mark chapter 10, verse 14. You can jot that down. Greatly displeased. It's the only time you find that Greek word in all of the New Testament. Um, and it actually means to be moved with indignation. So Jesus gets pretty ticked when we forbid children to come to him. That's a big no-no. He gets upset about that. So his voice was touched with tenderness, but also vibrated with thunder here. So these things that grieve us and make us indignant reveal much about the kind of people that we actually are. And what Jesus said and did here tells us volumes about him and his heart. So in the midst of his hot anger came one of the most gentle and most beautiful things that he had ever said about child life. And then the fathers, they were the ones bringing their kids to Jesus. How many of you guys would say women are the majority of the sexes leading their children spiritually? Hands up. Almost all of you guys would agree with that. But here we see dads. They were the ones doing it. And you guys know that children are far more statistically um, in a place to follow Jesus for their life if dad is following Jesus himself and leading the family. Okay, A mom might do it, and I don't know what the percentage is, but it's super low. But if dad does it, that percentage jumps up big time of their kids actually following the Lord. So don't take that lightly, brothers. We are called to spiritually lead our families. So I'm sure mothers might have been there. there. I'm, yeah, But uh, the Greek here actually pronounces um, to us that it's the men, the pronoun there, to prove that men were the ones bringing their kids. Um, the Hebrew law, it was the fathers who were responsible for the religious training of their kids. That was their job. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 15 tells us that they were infants, okay, weaned uh, or from the womb to being weaned. And it tells us that Jesus touched them. That was an Old Testament custom dating back. You guys remember when the patriarch Jacob blessed his kids? He laid his hands upon them, he touched them upon their heads. And his kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, blessed them. And this was very proper. It was very traditional and a very wonderful experience for these kids. Then it all stopped by people here chasing the kids away. How dare you come to the rabbi? How dare you try to come to Jesus? You children, he doesn't have time for you. There's no place for you. Get out of here. I love 
that Jesus said, don't forbid them, seems to say they will come if you don't get in the way. Children have faith. Don't get in the way of their faith. Do you guys know how many millions of kids probably today ask mom and dad, are we going to church? Can we go to church? No. Kids ask. Some of you guys are here today because the kids, hey, are we going to church? You know, don't forbid them. It seems that it's our responsibility then is getting things out of their way. So whatever hinders their coming, we need to get out of their way. I love that we have kids church. I love it. We want to give our kids Jesus to the best of our ability. We want to do that. Some of you guys have been asking if we're going to have a second service here at Freedom Fellowship. Seems like more and more people are coming. There's some weeks we don't have enough chairs. What are we going to do? Are we going to do Not until we have enough teachers to do another kids' church during that other service. Because I don't want to ever, well, we're going to have two services. This one will have kids' church, but we don't have it for this one. No, we want anybody that ever comes Okay, for their kids to be able to hear of the love of Jesus Christ and to learn of his word and to worship him. So I would encourage you guys, pray about that. Okay? Part of it is we need help. We need to do our part. You guys who maybe are a little bit older and your kids are out of the house, come alongside some younger parents who have kids. How can you be praying for them? How can you get to know them and know their kids so you can be praying for their kids, speaking into their lives, maybe helping practically with needs or spiritual needs that may be represented? So here in our text, guys, I think this is probably one of the best scriptures that we have for children's evangelism in all of the Bible. This is God's heart. Here it is. Let's do it. Anything that keeps kids away from the Lord. First thing that comes to my mind is public schools. You know, Rosanna will like this. <laughs> she likes when I do that in the mic. You know, I'm thankful for teachers and education. It's so cool that our kids can actually learn to write and read. Then they can read the scriptures and they can write about it to share with their friends. That's awesome. But when they're in a public school and they're taught there is no God, there was nothing. We're just a byproduct of nothing. You have no worth. It's survival of the fittest. That's junk. And I don't know about you guys, but what can we do? Okay? We want to look at it. Well, the government's so big. All our schools are run by this big government. We don't have a choice. This is just what it is. No, God's called us to go, didn't he? Let's go to the schools. We can go love on those kids. We can start after school clubs. We can share the gospel with them. We can be training our kids up to be bold with the gospel. Do you guys know that 80% of people would come to church if they were just invited? Man, have sleepovers. Have your kids invite their friends to church. They're welcome. We love kids here at Freedom Fellowship. Kids need to hear the truth. Why don't we do a VBS here at Freedom Fellowship? We don't have the workers, guys. We need the laborers. It'd be awesome to do. 
I'd love to have a VBS here where we're having kids from this community come on their summer break. Oh, I don't have to go to the public school. I can come and do something. And what? They're going to tell me the truth? They're going to tell me about this God who loved me and gave his life for me? You betcha. Wouldn't that be cool? We've done a bunch of them through the years, but we're not doing one this summer just because we don't have the laborers, guys. So what are we doing that we don't find ourselves being like the disciples. See, children can come to Christ early on. Okay, How many of you guys think you were saved before you were 10 years of age? Any of you guys think you were saved before five? Okay. I think people, kids can come to the Lord pretty young. Once they realize they're a sinner and they need a Savior. <laughs> <laughs> they can do the math. And who is that Savior? It's Jesus. But have they heard the gospel? So we will, guys, um, here at Freedom, take the time to help them understand okay, um, who Christ is. That as they do come to faith, they will have that solid foundation that they can grow in their devotion for Christ. So we pray for them. We want to cultivate their spiritual awareness and sensitivity. And here at Freedom Fellowship, guys, our policy has always been that we can bring kids into the sanctuary. I've actually encouraged some of you parents, like, hey, once a month, have your kids sit with you. Hang out, okay? But we also want to be able to give uh, you know, a place. Our goal here is for children to come to Jesus, and we want to serve that the best way possible. Okay, and the reality with kids, they are all at different points of development. Okay, our little two, three-year-old is going to be learning different than our little 10-year-old. So we want to be able to serve that. And we have classes for our younger kids, our older kids, even our young adults. We want to call our kids kids till they're 18, then they're adults. I look at kids that are about 12 years of age. They're young adults, guys. Throughout history, most people are working at the age of 12, 13. These are young adults. Adults, but we still want to be pouring into them. And praise God, we have Rise Youth Group. Okay, we got uh, people pouring, leadership pouring into them, teaching them. We want to make that available to them. And there's going to be those different maturity levels, and we want to meet those needs at their own level of understanding. In kids' church, we have curriculum that accommodates that. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but we're almost second through our second time going through the whole Bible chronologically with our kids. It's pretty cool. We're going to do an answers in Genesis. They're going to foundation on how to de defend the faith. This next fall, we'll be picking up back in Genesis again, and we'll go through the Bible again with them. Okay, It's not just little stories here and there. We're actually teaching them Scripture. Okay, My kids get to go to a Christian school. I, call, I count that a huge blessing, but it's cool. They know some stuff their teachers don't. Where did you learn that? kids church <laughs> no, they're learning scripture guys it's good stuff um and also we want to break up their time with re reasonable length of time as they go downstairs they're not just all doing bible study our older kids do a longer bible study our younger kids have more worship some crafts and bible teaching so we're just trying to meet where the kids are at how can we best give them Jesus and my prayer would be is that we as a church would come alongside how can we do that okay I asked Pastor Dave to teach next week just so I can go hang out with the kids you know I want to spend time with them what can I give to them what has God given to me that I can give to them what can I do and I think if we all do our 
part, if we have that mentality, that community, that village mentality, we're all going to come alongside and be part of each other's lives and raising our kids to know Jesus. I think that's beautiful. So let's conclude with this thought, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so welcome God's rule. Welcome, that's your choice. Welcome his authority. Do you do that into your life, into your heart? Okay, to be in that place of having that helpless dependence upon Jesus. I hope you're in that place. If you are not, I would love to spend some time with you, talk with you, consider some things. But tying that thought back into our kids, children of the kingdom must enter helpless, ones from whom everything must be done. It's like that old hymn, Joel, I don't know if you know that one, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. And I want to end by uh, something Warren Wiersbe, I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, we tell children to behave like adults, but Jesus tells the adults to model themselves after children. I agree with my brother on that. That's good. Once you guys stand with me, we will close in prayer. Yeah, Father, we are thankful for your word. God, and we know that some of these scriptures this morning um, can be hard to go through, but they're right. They are good. And we do want to ask of you to bless just the marriages that would be represented here at Freedom Fellowship. We want to shine well for you. We want to encourage one another to love each other, to serve well. And we also want to, Lord, come alongside those who are in seasons of singleness or maybe you've given the gift to, uh, to be freed up, to live a life of singleness that they uh, can be about kingdom business all the time. Lord, help us to encourage them and build them up and pour into them and to serve with them when we can. Lord, we just thank you for your body. It's very unique. God, your ways are way better than ours. And uh, we want to be about your business. God, we see our need. We're fully dependent upon you. So we ask of you. That's why we pray now. That's why we're here. We know that you know best. Thank you so much for this time this morning together. Thank you for your word. Would you please go before uh, my brothers and sisters this week. Establish us according to your good purposes, your will. Help us to honor you and glorify you in all that we do. We know we need the help of your Holy Spirit to do that. So we're asking, Lord, strengthen us. Give us boldness, Lord. Help us to love well for your glory. Amen.